0: Hello and welcome to the Digital Sue Podcast. I'm Samantha Davis and I dress up more than just for the grocery store now that I'm vaccinated. Uh, I had to wait a little bit but I'm so glad I got it and I was really nervous for the second one but I ended up not really having much of a reaction except (laughs) I got a really weird rash on my arm. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. I'm so excited to tell you guys that I'm pretty sure that I won't be taking any more multiple month long breaks. I don't want to jinx it. But last semester was pretty crazy. Next semester I'm taking some pretty insane classes too, but hopefully I will be able to write some scripts before that semester starts. I'm not unt- like 100% on that, but I'm hoping that until the end of the year I'll be able to post an episode a month. And if not that, I'll be trying to post on the website more. Um, I have some great plans for articles I'll be writing and hopefully near the end of the year I'll be able to announce this special project I've been working on that maybe you guys can collaborate with me. So welcome to Stale Bread. Uh, We're going to be talking about old ass bread and some really interesting just what the fuck like what went through your brain to think to do this archaeology. It's very cool. But before we get started, we're going to talk about this month's charity, which is another double feature because June, which was last month, this is July 1st, I know, but June is not only for Pride Months, also for Juneteenth. And I realized that because my schedule got really messed up because of my last semester. This is not coming out in June like it should be. It's coming out in July, but I really wanted to keep these charities that I had in mind. I wanted to still give them a platform. So this month we're doing doubles. The first one is going to be Center for Black Equity. And this organization works to improve the lives of black LGBTQ people globally. They provide a space for black LGBTQ plus people to discuss specific issues that are unique to their community um, because, because black LGBTQ people do face the same, uh, they face the same hate that white LGBTQ people do and people of other races who are part of this community do, but they also experience some very niche other types of hate from people, specifically racism. But uh, it's very interesting that a lot of people who are Black and part of the LGBTQ plus community, they do get ostracized from their community sometimes. So it's really important for them to have their own space. They also have introduced uh, the Black Gay Pride movement. And been going on longer than I've been alive. It's 1991 was the first black gay pride and it was to provide black LGBTQ plus people with an alternative to the mostly white and mainstream LGBTQ plus movement and I think that uh, the pride and LGBTQ plus movements that do have a lot of white people in the forefront suffer in a lot of ways that white feminism and a lot of these feminist marches suffer in the same way from, in that white people think that, oh, I experienced this hardship, like being a woman or being gay, and that means I'm on the same level with everyone. And that's just not true. It's very different experience for everyone uh, in this community. So I think it's really important and really great that this movement exists um, because even with the best intentions, I think a lot of white people, do tend to step on people of color um, just to get their voices heard. Now, the Black Gay Pride movement has focused on really interesting issues other than same-sex marriage, which is usually the base for most pride marches and LGBTQ. The Black Gay Pride movement focuses on things like racism, homophobia, and a lack of proper health and mental care in Black communities. So Black Pride's are meant to promote awareness of self and community, respect and dignity. And their official website will be linked in the show notes, as usual. And it even has a very helpful list of Black Prides that are held all over the world. It was actually really well set up on the website. I love when, um, so they have this like map of the world and all the little pins and you can find exactly where and it'll take you right to the specific page or website. Connected to such said pride, like there's a Black Pride in Paris. There's um, I do not have the like map in front of me, so now I'm just thinking of the one place. But they have a lot of really cool organizations that they work with and link to. So please send them your money or just volunteer to help them if you can. Hi, this is editing Sam. I'm just back on. on, just to let you guys know how to find the map I'm talking about, because it's a little bit hidden if, you know, it's not explicitly labeled on the site, just make sure you go to Center for Black Equity, and they have this secondary banner, so not the very top one in the blue, but in the white it says things like 12 months of Black Pride, Black LGBTQ plus Prides, the network events, click on Black LGBTQ plus Prides, and scroll down, And it says, find a Black Pride near Mew. And it, actually, it's really cool. There's, most of them are in the U.S., I will say. Uh, There's two in Europe right now, and there's one in Paris, and there's one in the U.K. There's two in the Caribbean. Honestly, pretty much all across the U.S. you can find one. And (laughs) surprisingly, there are 15 different Black Prides in the South East, which is pretty great if you ask me. And there's also one in Suriname, which is, uh, in South America. So just in case you were curious about that, you check it out, explore. And something I didn't notice until I was just messing around on here is they have multiple blogs. Uh, where? There we go. Uh, they have a blog for themselves and then they have all these blogs that are sort of under their umbrella, I guess. It's pretty great. Let's see. And they have a bunch of podcasts as well. And oh I see what they're saying. Okay. So they have this list of black LGBTQ plus blogs and podcasts to follow. I highly recommend you guys check these out as well. Uh there's three blogs listed. There's Holy bullies, and headless monsters. And this is talking about, like, religious, uh, religious bigotry against LGBTQ people and, you know, junk cherry-pick science. There's G-Listed, and this is, like, a media platform talking about culture and community. And there's one called Men Who Brunch, and this is specifically for black gay men. This is just a lifestyle nightlife blog, and there's three, six, nine, twelve, fifteen, fifteen different podcasts linked. And they are all black LGBTQ. I'm sorry, I just saw this one. It's called Quarantine and Chill. That is the best name. Um, I'm definitely going to look through these after editing and pick out a couple because they look really cool. And it is never too early to expand your world world worldview, guys. So check out a new podcast while you're listening to me. Now, the other charity this month is Trans Lifeline, and trans people are the most at-risk communities uh, are one of the most at-risk communities in the LGBTQ plus community for violence. And I think that this charity, Trans Lifeline, is a great resource for the trans community because one of the leading causes of, well, content warning, I'm going to discuss something um, that might be triggering for some people. So skip ahead a couple of times. Um, But one of the leading causes for suicide in teenagers is having or is like questioning their sexuality and not being accepted, especially questioning their sexuality and their identity that's like a big thing for teenagers and um, because you're starting to finally come into yourself and know who you really are so these kids who are realizing that they are trans when they're not accepted or they feel like they are not accepted they are very high risk for suicide and that's why trans lifeline is very very important and it's not just a great resource for these kids They can actually talk to a real person. It's an active hotline. There's also a micro grant program and numerous other resources. So this site is a really great landing spot for questioning and transitioning individuals. So their mission statement is as follows. Trans Lifeline provides trans peer support for our community that's been divested from police since day one were run by and for trans people. So for anyone curious, their U.S. number is 877-565-8860, and the Canadian number is 877-330-6366. And their site will also be listed in the show notes. Now, for Stale Bread, the episode, we're going to obviously be talking about the history, but for this episode, I actually used um, Allie Ward's podcast, is one of her episodes, um, we're going to be discussing one of her episodes later on, um, but since I had her on the brain, I wanted to, like, talk about entomology of bread, and so for this episode, all the research, I used Wikipedia, an old textbook called Economic Botany, which is actually a really fun read. I found it for pretty cheap online, so it's not textbook prices, if you're wondering. I also found an article from CBS News, Podcastologies, and Proof Podcast, which Proof Podcast is actually very fun and interesting. I highly recommend them as well. They do a lot of really interesting food history, and they did, like, an episode on blue food that just kind of blew my mind. It was great, and they had had an episode on jelly bean flavors, too, that was really fun. So... Like I said, we're starting with entomology of bread, etymology of bread. The earliest instance of bread in language uh, is from Old English, and the word for bread half, half, uh, translates to loaf in modern English. Now, later on, the Middle and Modern English word bread appears in neighboring Germanic lang- languages of West Frisian, so that's the Netherlands, and they called it brae, B-R-E-A. The Dutch called it brood. Germans brought. Swedes brood. There's like an umlaut over the O. So B-R-O-D, but with an umlaut. And the Norwegians and Danes said brood uh, with a line through the O. I'm not really sure what that one's called. <laughs> but uh, this version of the word bread, that is, uh, may be related to brew or break, which was originally translated to broken piece or morsel in modern English. All right, so at its most basic form, bread is created from flour, water, and salt. And it's really been the basis of diet in cultures around the world. It's actually very interesting how wide ranging turning a cereal grain into a flour and then turning that flour into a type of bread It's very, basically everywhere, anywhere there's some type of bread. Now, check out Holidays and Confused. That's episode, editing me, come here and say it. I I didn't write that down. Shit. (laughs) What's up? This is Editing Sam. I looked at my phone for five seconds and found out Holidays and Confused is episode 12. But it's a season two episode for more information on leavening products like a sourdough starter. I talk a lot about that and the history of challah. But bread can be leavened by any leavening product. And there's, a th- now the three main categories are biological and chemical varieties. And basically what they do is they produce CO2 gas to leaven bread. Now the biological leavener is yeast. And <laughs> It occurs naturally in the air and you can capture it by creating a sourdough starter. And it is now produced commercially so that bakers can bake bread that is just yeast leavened without the taste of sourdough. I don't know why you wouldn't want that, though. But it is a lot easier to create bread with just commercial yeast. Now chemical leaveners can also be used like baking soda or baking powder. I don't know if you've had baking soda bread, delicious. I love it. It's even faster than yeast-raised bread. So that's great too. Now, the one that you may not be f- totally familiar with is steam, which can be added by putting a pan of water in the oven or consist of laminating butter into puff pastry, which is a dough and counts as a bread. The water content of the butter will release steam and thus cause a rise in the bread. And that's the last of the categories. So like I was saying before, when we were talking about yeast, airborne yeasts were harvested, were harnessed by leaving uncooked dough exposed to air for some time before cooking. Now, Pliny the Elder, who is a very old Roman historian and philosopher, that he reports that the Gauls and the Iberians used the foam skimmed from beer, which was called barm, to produce a lighter kind of bread than other people's. And historically, a lot of people did use alcohol to aid the fermentation process because creating alcohol and creating bread were actually kind of hand in hand. Now, other parts of the ancient world that didn't really drink beer, they drank wine, they actually created bread by making a paste of grape juice and flour and it was allowed to ferment or the wheat bran was steeped in the wine to create yeast. But really the most common source of leavening was to retain a piece of dough from the previous day to use as an early form of sourdough starter. And you can technically do that today. However, with all the additives that are pretty common in breads now, I wouldn't suggest it unless you're doing a real ancient grain sourdough with no nothing and you want to do that before you add the salt because salt kills the yeast which we're going to get into the whole process of bread baking in a minute but I thought it would be fun to talk about agriculture first. So wheat hasn't always been available worldwide so agriculture or the cultivation of plants has been documented as late as pre-9000 BC in Syria and Israel. And it should be noted here that there could be even earlier evidence that might not yet be discovered or might ever be able to be discovered. So the Middle East and Northern and Central African countries have pretty much the best climate for preserving ancient artifacts. There's also certain places in Asia that are just, you know, prime, (laughs) prime areas for preserving very, very old biological evidence. This is editing Sam, hopping in real quick to say don't even get me started on the 99 million year old dinosaur tail found encased in amber in China. What later? Hold on, let me double check the year on this. Yeah, in 2016, this was found and they keep finding more and more stuff. China is just the best place, apparently, to find really great dinosaur specimens. Now, and plant material or evidence of agriculture can be really hard to prove after a certain period of time just due to degradation. And I've, and it's just because it's a natural fiber. It doesn't decompose like a mammal would, obviously. Just different cell structure even, you know? It just breaks down much differently. And there's some very interesting ways people have been able to preserve these um, products. And it's not even just we what's really interesting is there's been some excavations where they find this like weird pocket of dirt and it's just there's it's just air but then they start excavating and they see in the dirt there's an impression of a basket weave and that's all that's left of this basket because it's just however many thousands of years old it's just completely turned into dust but what's left is this imprint in the dirt it's so cool as you would probably imagine, is very hard to find those because once this uh, dirt hole is just there, it's very easy to cave in, very easy to disturb. Now, in many academic circles, the development of agriculture is tied to the rise of civilization, which this concept's really interesting to me as the term civilization to anthropologists, as well as some historians, Civilization is a word that does not have a definition that's widely agreed upon in these circles, and my personal belief, I, uh, I just don't like to use it because I think that the term civilization has been sometimes used to just make some really bad takes. I've heard some people say they believe that civilization started with friggin' written language, which is so just—it's a fallacy. I, um. I had to hold my tongue in a history class where the professor even said that oh, uh, civilization only exists with written language which is it's not even just an old belief system it's actually and it's also just rooted in colonialism especially European colonialism when the Spaniards first came to the Americas they couldn't figure out the languages of a lot of the indigenous people and they believed that because they couldn't understand it and they're so enlightened and smart so if I can't figure it out there's well there's one of two things they say oh they're savages we can just kill them and it's fine or if they were sent by the church they're like oh my god this is from the devil not only are they savages we have to like kill them and or convert them and I think that's so stupid because language is such an interesting concept to me it's a cultural construct right And I've heard learned about tribes that can still communicate through drum beats because their language is so tonal. And this drum communication was meant to pass messages across a wide space. And it was even used during social gatherings to tell stories. And that was how they passed down stories through their oral traditions. Now, one of my personal favorite cultures to learn about, the Incan people in the Andes, and just, well, basically any Andean culture. I think it's really fascinating uh, how they adapted to the environment there. Uh, They didn't use a type of written language that can be easily translated. Uh, They used a complex series of knots on a special belt-like garment called a kipu, and it's really interesting because they developed this while neighboring empires. They didn't have, like, a lot of communication between them obviously but it was really interesting that all these different cultures developed independently from each other and so differently because the neighboring Aztec and Mayan people they had this glyphic writing. Kipos haven't been totally understood even today there's only so few surviving because like I said uh, when these European Christians came over they couldn't understand the kipu, so one of the techniques of conquering another culture, um, when you want them to conform to yours, is this thing called is this thing called sociocide, where you destroy their culture and don't allow them to practice their culture and force them to practice your culture. And part of that was destroying their written language, so. Uh, all these quipus were burned. There's so few surviving even now. But what's really interesting is, in these really remote areas of the Andean mountains, they're still in use. A lot of these farmers use them. Um, and what's interesting about the quipu and why it's still in use is because it's a interesting marriage of technically written language and math. So these really remote farmers, they use the kipu for counting their cattle. But there's evidence that it was used for just inventory from, there's evidence of merchants tracking their inventory. Um, There's records of marriages and battles and historical dates. It's really fascinating. And uh, it's also really interesting that we don't fully understand it yet, too. That, well, now that I'm like not... (laughs) on this tangent anymore. Uh, We'll get back to the history of agriculture. So the world has a really wide variety of climates, like I was saying, and therefore it's got a really wide variety of vegetation to domesticate. It's really important to note that wheat and the grains that are about to be listed are actually fruits, and wheat itself is classified as a caryopsis. It's a simple dry fruit, which has a fruit wall that is fused to the seed coat. And it's really interesting because corn is also uh, it, because corn and some other ceo- cereal grains are also defined as karyopsis because their seed coat is attached to the um, fruit wall, which it's really interesting. And I do have an episode coming up that we're going to talk about um, all the different fruit types because it just blew my mind in this biology class I took. So I think you guys are really going to like that episode. But we're going to talk about the Americas first. Maize was first domesticated in Mesoamerica, so we're thinking like Latin America, and Quinoa, Andean culture area. But maize was soon really, really widely grown, and if you're familiar with the Andes, Andean culture area, it's really hard to get around there. And before colonization, there weren't pack animals, so everything was kind of just carried around on foot through the Americas. It wasn't just the Andean culture area. So because of how mountainous and kind of isolated the Andean culture area was, quinoa spread very slowly. Now we're going to go all the way to the other uh, side of the world. We're going to Africa, India, and China. So millet was able to grow in a really wide variety of climates. It's, uh, dom- it was domesticated in all three of these areas. But China, and through trade, later India, also domesticated rice, which is really, really, really important because it's such a great food stock to have, just like corn is. It's very nutritious, and it can, you know, be turned into almost anything. Now we're going to go back to the Fertile Crescent, as we were talking about before, also called Mesopotamia. And this is where the most popular grain, wheat was first domesticated. Now, barley was also domesticated here, uh, and both were actually grown in this area for nearly 10,000 years. Now, in order to talk about wheat, we do have to talk about a biology term called sympatric speciation, which is a fancy word for natural hybridization. And this led to its eventual domestication. So it's really interesting that this plant basically domesticated itself naturally before humans got a hold of it. And this domestication led to a separation into einkorn and emmer wheat. Now, in early cultivation of wheat, natural mutations led to the fruit being resistant to shattering. And as these mutant grains were incorporated into the crop, a new type of wheat was formed called einkorn. This ancient grain is only really cultivated in a few relic areas today, and it's not mass produced. The kind of wheat that pretty much everyone in the world eats now that's emmer wheat and it's created by well we have to go all the way back to the beginning with this and this sterile hybrid of triticum monococcum and a wild triticum varietal so you can't even call it wheat yet it's a very ancient grain and this sterile hybrid was able to self-fertilize because of a cell division error and Became what is now known as emmer wheat or durum wheat, which, you know, we know, all know what durum flour is, right? And it's so cool. It's just, you know, there's this teeny little error in its genetics and it leads to this super important crop. It's crazy. Now, what's more even more significant biologically is that this hybridization made wheat that was able to produce a yeast leavened bread through polyploidity, which That's a fancy word for when the cells of an organism have more than two paired sets of chromosomes because of all this interbreeding with all these wild and different um, plant varieties and self-fertilization, this led to all these extra chromosomes. This condition's really common in plants, actually, and especially in cases like the sympatric speciation of wheat. So bread wheat is described as a tetraploid, which means it contains four sets of chromosomes. And due to this condition, uh, bread wheat contains a large amount of proteins called gliadin and glutenin, which together uh, is known as gluten. So just a quick review process for the baking of bread. Also, like I said, check out Holidays and Confused for just a little bit more information I go into a little bit more depth. Now, glutenin and gliadin in flour means that when water is added, an elastic dough will form when it's needed. If yeast is added, it's either, you know, as a pre-fermented wild yeast solution or commercial yeast, the yeast cells are able to ferment the dough by eating the natural sugars that are in the wheat fruit. Now, I don't know if you guys ever uh, had to bloom yeast for when you're using a commercial yeast you put it in some warm water and you add a little sugar or a little honey because yeast needs food and yeast only eats sugar so it feeds off this natural sugar and the natural byproduct of this fermentation is the release of co2 gas now this gas doesn't just go out into the air it's actually trapped in the dough since it's an elastic dough because of this proteins of glutenin and gliadin this gas is trapped in the dough and that's how it forms its inner texture of like all the little crags and bubbles in there. So after this dough has rested and been treated by the yeast, after it's prepared, baking the dough sets this inner texture in place because it dries out the starch. It denatures or destroys the characteristics of the proteins. So the proteins aren't working to create this structure anymore. And it kills off the yeast cells. So the yeast can't work to create the, so the yeast can't continue this chemical reaction of fermentation anymore. It's a really crazy, interesting process. And I really, this and alcohol, I always wonder like, who thought of this first? And What's really interesting is a lot of scientists think it started even before human evolution did. Um, As most of us know, uh, humans and a lot of other primates, we have a common ancestor. And there's a lot of evidence of humans and other primates Uh, picking up and eating rotten fruit or letting it rot and um, basically become alcoholic for how long it rotted. And we just had so much fun eating all this rotten fruit. We figured out how to do it with everything because sourdough starters, um, they capture this wild yeast and you just continue to feed the yeast and just let it eat on its, uh, let it basically consume itself and start this really interesting chemical process. And what's really funny is a lot of biologists who study other mammals like deer and wolves and everything, some deer are known to, some deer, and i totally for blanking on the other mammals that have been studied doing this behavior. And this is editing Sam. I'm just tuning in real quick because I found this article I was reading earlier. And the types of wild animals that have been observed to sort of, uh well, this article says voluntary ethanol intoxication. <laughs> this voluntary intoxication has been documented in elk, in deer, and vervet monkeys, and most recently elephants also <laughs> get drunk, which really kind of freaks me out. uh I don't know. I, having seen an elephant in person and knowing how large they are and how just much destruction they can rat, rot um, when they're sober. I really don't want to be around a drunk elephant, <laughs> and it makes me think of my other podcast. We reviewed Dumbo a while ago, and we were like, "Elephant can't get drunk." So I guess I'm gonna have to bring this up in our next recording, talking about uh, elephants actually do get drunk. So tune into Opening the Vault, I guess, if you want to hear me eat my words they will sort of pick up fruit that has been rotten and just eat a bunch of it and basically get drunk on rotten fruit. Just have a little fun. Um, and They they seek out this rotten fruit to basically get drunk. And I think that's so funny to me. And is basically any animal. Uh, If they can, they'll get on these drugs, like alcohol. And then the more I think about animals willingly taking these drugs because they know what's going to happen. I'm thinking of this really vintage episode of My Favorite Murder when they talk about cocaine bear, where uh, this plane flying over the border um, has, like, a huge stack of, like, cocaine in the back. And I think they're getting, like, like, flagged down by whatever patrol there is in the sky. I guess. Or I think Border Patrol was, like, following them. And so they dumped um, this huge, like, container of cocaine into the forest and a bunch of these bears started eating it. And then there's, like, a follow-up episode where someone writes in saying, oh, the same thing happened another time except wild hogs got into it, which... I don't know if you guys have experience with wild hogs, but even when they're sober, they're fucking terrifying they're dangerous and you should not go near them just like bison and buffalo you don't want to piss them off they're freaky as hell but I don't know it's just very funny to think about uh all the things that humans have in common with our animal uh neighbors (laughs) and now that I'm on a whole nother crazy tangent I think we should get into what inspired this episode which is some what the fuck experimental archaeology. So why is this title stale bread and why who what happened basically what happened in my brain? I just happened to be listening to the Ologies podcast a while ago and there was this episode on gastroegyptology or baking bread from an ancient Egyptian sourdough starter. And after that episode I was just like that sounds like the coolest thing ever. And when I first got into anthropology, that's part of what I wanted to do was to recreate the ancient foods of ancient people through archaeology. Now I'm kind of more into skeletons. I'm not really sure how that happened, but (laughs) I sort of Down an internet hole researching this experiment, and it was so interesting. So I listened to the episode on ologies, and he act this scientist, Seamus Blackley. He also went on to the Proof podcast, and it was really interesting both times. That even though it was like he's talking about the same thing, it felt very different from each interview. You know, he's a very interesting person to hear about and basically hear someone talk to him. And this whole thing started because Seamus tweeted about his little experiment as it was happening. So Seamus Blackley is a physicist and video game designer who had a hand in developing the Xbox. (laughs) I know. And he didn't work alone in this experiment, though. He's not an Egyptologist, and he's not a microbiologist, obviously he worked with Egyptologist Dr. Serena Love and microbiologist Richard Bowman. And these two scientists, they collected and did the brunt of the study of the ancestral yeast. And James Blackley was there as, I'm not really sure exactly. I, I mean, he started the experiment, I believe, and he worked with them a lot and consulted. So this is editing Sam back again. I think what I was trying to say in this recording was that I'm a little unsure exactly like what his title was in this experimentation. Dr. Love and Dr. Bowman, they did the scientific work that would go into a paper while Seamus Blackley, he did this sort of side project as well as some consulting with these scientists. I do believe he did contribute to the original experiment as well as conducting his own And, you know, helped collect these samples. Now, dormant yeast samples were studied and collected from, get this, the pores of ancient ceramic pots from the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard. So these ceramic pots were most likely used for beer or bread making because in a lot of these cultures that have beer and bread or alcohol and bread, vessels are kind of interchangeable and they get used together a lot. And oh, it reminded me of this really interesting study I talked about last episode um, about the cho- in the chocolate episode about how they traced chocolate trade in the Americas by basically collecting the pore, uh collecting samples from the pores of ceramic vessels, like they did here. Now these samples were collected by Dr. Love and analyzed by Mo- Bowman over the course of a year, but Blackley ended up keeping one of the samples. He like specifically said, I was naughty and I kept one of the samples. I didn't I don't say I was naughty. A lot. That's not like a thing that I say. He said it. That's a quote. And he kept one of the samples and sending them instead of sending them all off to Bowman for analysis. So Blackley kept this not to be like mine. He started this experiment because he wanted to make bread. And in order for the sample to be viable to make a sourdough starter, which would then turn into bread, he had to sterilize this yeast first. And then, like any sourdough starter, had to be fed and cultivated for a few weeks before it could be viable. And to make his experiment as authentic as possible, he actually used ancient organic grains for the flour, unfiltered olive oil, and water for his dough. So he didn't even use salt um, the way we would. And he sort of live tweeted the experience. And he said, and I'm quoting here, the idea is to make a dough with identical ingredients to what the yeast ate 4,500 years ago. The aroma of this yeast is unlike anything I've experienced, which I can imagine, especially if you're working with these Dormant cells that from this yeast that basically it didn't exist, it doesn't exist anymore because uh, it's today's yeast has been changed so much just by natural evolution. And he even scored the loaf with an ancient Egyptian symbol for bread, which I thought was really cute. And he later described the bread in interviews as light and airy, especially for a hundred percent ancient grain loaf. Now, their aroma and flavor are incredible. It's really different, and you can easily tell that this is sort of a different type of bread. Even if you're not a bread nerd, like, you'll be able to tell, hmm, this is unlike any bread <laughs> I've ever had before. And I thought that was really interesting. I had so much fun listening to this guy over again. He's just a really enigmatic guy. He's very... Just a... F- very personable guy, very sweet, easy to interview. It seems like, so I had fun just listening to this guy over again. And speaking of fun people to listen to, I'm going to talk about the book of the month, Indianish by Priya Krishna is seriously one of my favorite cookbooks that I have because I've been trying to just cook more. Because I bake a lot, I bake almost all the time. It's my natural stress reliever. It's my favorite thing to do when I need to sort of relax and turn off my brain. And it's it's the thing I have the most ideas for. I don't know if anyone who works in food can sort of attest to this, but it's just like I think everyone has a certain area of the culinary world uh, once they get really experienced in something. Even if you're a home cook and you get really experienced. I think everyone has a favorite little tiny little section It can be a big section, but you know, everyone has their favorite section of the culinary world that they naturally get ideas for and they get the most excited about cooking. And mine is pastry. However, part of my, one of my resolutions for this year was to like cook and get more excited and more creative in the savory side of cooking because I, you know, I have some set recipes that I like to use and I think I fell into a little bit of a rut with them. And so I've been trying to be more creative. And also, one of my resolutions, this book sort of wraps the two into one, is to eat a little less meat and eat more uh, vegetables and really good for me stuff. (laughs) So, I bought this book just when it came out because I had just fallen in love with the food writing, the recipes, and the personality of this chef, Priya Krishna. She does a lot of really interesting stuff on YouTube as well. It's really cool how modern food media really relies on the personality and the the personality of the chef and the fact that in order to make it you do have to be really active on social media and video platforms. I think it's really interesting that so many different personalities exist in this new world and there's literally just someone for everyone out there. It's kind of crazy and overwhelming. Now this book has really vibrant photography and drawings. It's interesting and really easy to follow recipes, and overall it's just a really fun read because she adds little personal touches all through the book. And this book was written with Ritu Krishna, which is Priya's mom. It's really sweet that even this book is dedicated to her parents. I just, I know this sounds so cheesy, but this is the kind of book where you just can't help but smile when you read it. It's just a really fun, cozy, like weirdly homey book, even though I'm not Indian and I don't cook Indian food on the regular. Uh, but it, it just feels very sweet and like from the heart. Oh, God, that was so cheesy, but really, I feel like it's sweet. Now, Ritu Krishna, uh, she helped with the recipes because a lot of these are what she created when Priya was a girl. And. She provides a wine pairing list at the end of the book for all the previous recipes, which I don't drink, but I thought that was fun. And I think that this book is a really good starter book for someone who wants to explore Indian cuisine if they're an American chef, because this book is basically, this book is basically like the Tex-Mex version of Indian food, except it's like American, very Americanized Indian food. And so I think it adds a lot of familiarity and you're you know you're dipping your toe in it's very interesting and honestly for any home cook who's trying to eat more vegetarian meals no matter where you live this is this book has great recipes for vegetarian dishes and there's some meat-based dishes it's mostly chicken um, and some fish but Indianish is really dominated by flavorful and delicious vegetarian recipes and if you are kind of on the fence. Uh, there's definitely a lot of free YouTube videos that you can follow along with her, and she's definitely cooked a few of the recipes from Indianish, where you can try them out with her. Now, the tool of the month we're gonna get into is technically another double feature, you guys. It's the mortar and pestle. It's also called a mano imitate, and without this and other kinds of grinding grinding tools, there would be no bread. So, I thought it was really important to discuss this. And there, so there's a certain style of this tool in most cultures. Sometimes it's a little differently shaped, but basically if there's a cereal grain or um, it basically, if there's a cereal grain, which there's a cereal grain anywhere in the world, if it's there, there's going to be a grinding tool. And, you know, one of the big parts of Native American culture is having uh, mano and it was used for mashing corn into a kind of masa flour early on, which was the basis for the diet, even in prehistoric times, really. And squirrel mash is really popular among Native Americans. I've never had it, but a lot of archaeologists that I've worked with have. Basically, they get the squirrels, they skin them, and they sort of take the mano and mash them together before they cook them and everyone has a little bit and you just spit out the little squirrel bones as you eat. I'd be a little scared to do that because I'm probably the person on the trip that would start choking on a squirrel bone. (laughs) Uh, I have the worst luck with that kind of thing. It's pretty interesting that even in Europe, during this medieval era of Europe, a really finely ground paste or dough became a sign of status because it requires a lot of human effort to make a very finely ground anything, really. And mortars and pestles were a staple in the kitchens of aristocrats. This practice soon really spread to every aspect of the kitchen. Sauces were strained multiple times, Flowers of grains or nuts and sugars were really ground even finer and doubly sifted. And so I used uh, Consider the Fork for research on this tool of the month. And I will say it is a little bit eurocentric in some of its uh research which is why this mostly talks about medieval europe he even talks about after these flowers were sifted they would be uh sifted through a cloth like that's how fine the flower had to be and today actually i use a mini version of a mortar and pestle it's very very cute and little it is somewhere in the many boxes of tools i have in my (laughs) apartment right now I mainly use it for grinding spices, or if I'm testing an older recipe that calls for a mortar and pestle for its use. Unfortunately, I, I don't really have the time to test such involved recipes that would need this tool because of school and work, but hopefully over my break between schools, I can have some time. Speaking of which, I do have some time to work on the Opening the Vault podcast, which is the other podcast I'm a co-host on. We rewatch and review Disney movies chronologically, so oldest to newest, uh, through a modern lens. And it's really fun. I love the guys who work on there, Ben and John. I think they're probably listening. They're really sweet guys. They listen to this podcast as well. And you can email me questions or suggest a new episode idea at digitalsue at gmail.com. It's spelled D-I-G-I-T-A-L-S-O-U-S, no space, all lowercase. And you can use that same name to find me on instagram it's at digital sue all lowercase no space now thank you so much for listening and i don't don't really like any of my sign off ideas for this episode i have like a list of them and i'm not i'm not sure i love any of them make sure to tune back in august 1st for an episode on taco history and while i still have you here before i let you go for real Please be sure to check out the Digital Sue website. It's digital sue, all lowercase no space, just like earlier.com. We have all sorts of articles coming up there. Or we. I always say we. It's just me in, my, <laughs> in this co- corner of my bedroom writing uh, food articles. So you can check out the website for new content. I'll be restructuring it a little bit. So have fun. See you later.